and welcome to the latest episode of EdTech Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. I'm glad you found us. And uh, a very special guest with me today, Elliot Levine. Elliot, uh, you have the distinct or unfortunate pleasure of being my first repeat guest on my podcast uh, that started this time, about this time last year. So congratulations. Thank you. Misery truly loves no company. So I'm <laughs> glad to be back. And uh, hopefully I, I don't get in trouble enough that I have to come back for the third time. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm really glad that you did come back. So that's, that, that's saying something. So, uh, and what a difference uh, a year makes, right? I mean, between, uh, oh, yeah. you know, we had a lot of big picture discussions. I believe that we were probably both pretty much still shell-shocked as a result of the pandemic and, and talking about things. You were one of the first to come out with kind of a manifesto of what the ed tech industry and what education in general needs to do to address various things in terms of digital equity, uh, in, in terms of uh, device management, uh, in, in terms of many different elements at both the K-12 and the higher ed. And, uh, you know, we only have four hours here to, to dig into <laughs> Oh, okay. Into so all I'll have things. to be brief is what yes. you're saying. But let's start with the real news at the top uh, from this time last year to this time now. Uh, a new, new company, new title, Director of Worldwide Education for Qualcomm Technologies. Congratulations. Thank and uh, you. maybe you can talk a little bit about what uh, your new role entails. So I guess the best thing to do is, is kind of go back to what my old role was. And I was Chief Academic Officer. Uh, for STS education. And at this point last year, we had school systems throughout the country just going through a fire drill. Um, their quest to try to achieve some sort of digital equity uh, was very well-intentioned and the resources just weren't there to back it up. You know, we came into this pandemic with somewhere between 15 and 16 million children in the U.S. alone without a device, internet access at home, or both in their household. Here we are today, a year later, that's only down to 12 million. So we've barely scratched the surface as far as reaching the children most in need. Mm. And in fact, last spring, it was the wealthier school systems that had the financial resources to order devices early. Those that needed to wait for grant money or budget money, those with a higher percentage of children at or below the poverty line. They didn't have that luxury and they had to wait to place their orders. Those are school systems that are just now finally getting their devices after nearly a year's worth of back orders. And what we still have at the end of the day is this, this inability to really go beyond equity, but to digitally liberate every child, every learner, every teacher to be able to do this. And you know, when I was approached by Qualcomm for this opportunity, the news story at the time was a young 10-year-old boy um, down the Southwest who was walking to school, sitting outside just to get internet access. And the educator in me just teared up seeing this young child laying on the concrete floor because all he wanted to do was his schoolwork. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was just striking a chord with me. And Qualcomm's like, how about you come to a company that is trying to really liberate every child in every country? And I, that alone just made me leap at the opportunity here. And 
it's caused me to really rethink networks and connectivity from an education perspective in ways that I had always thought was, you know, that was a luxury, that wasn't necessarily the reality. But now I'm starting to see this is an effective and sustainable model that can be used in any country, even those that don't have traditional broadband connections. Hmm. Hmm. So talk a little bit uh, about what, you know, I call BP before the pandemic, and now here we are DP <laughs> during the pandemic, right? And these are conversations that we have had about digital equity and about equal access. And it was always very much, uh, for me, I'll speak for myself, a conceptual thing. It was ethereal, uh, you know, kind of a, a big concept sort of thing, a chicken in every pot. Um, now we were thrust into the greatest, uh, most terrible uh, beta test uh, in, in history, right? In terms of getting students remote and trying to set up a remote learning thing and uh, addressing digital equity issues that were at once conceptual, but now we're in reality. You said reality yourself. Talk a little bit about where you see from where you sit, where we can address those realities uh, now. Uh, you know, instead of looking at the past and we know that's there, like going forward, what are the steps what are some concrete steps that both industry as well as the education systems can take uh, to start to uh, solve this particular conundrum? You know, let's just take the term homework gap. And I, I think it's very softened language for really the inequities that exist here in the U.S., but globally as well. And pre-pandemic, this was something talked about, but there was no immediate call to action. Now we're seeing the direct impact of it. But the crazy part is educators really did see the impact of this homework gap, as they want to call it. They saw it years ago because these were the children that were not thriving academically at school. Those with means to learn throughout the day you know, we extend the school day well beyond nine to three or eight to three, whatever the case may be. They're learning before, during, after school. They have access to resources, supplemental tools to do so. And that's the shortcoming that so many children have. Just the fact that they don't have a device and or internet access is just the first of many issues that come into play. And this is the one that we're still trying to solve. But plenty of parents, even right now, who they can check the box because either they provided it, their school provided it, a little combination. Okay, all my kids are home, all the kids have devices, and they're all learning. Check, check, check. They're still struggling. They're still failing because all we're now doing is a very, an, almost an asynchronous learning experience because the students aren't directly involved. The teachers aren't getting the sort of feedback they need and students who really now more than ever need oftentimes supplemental help and tutoring, they're not getting it. Mm. And while last spring schools, many schools had policies saying, look, don't give the kid a grade less than they got for the rest of the year. Schools don't have that luxury now. Mm -hmm. And when standardized testing comes back, whether it's this June or next spring, we're going to see just how bad the impact was. So this is calling for us to really rethink what we're doing, how we're doing it, and most of all, how are we measuring it? 
because anecdotal studies and, and, and reports and such, that's not going to do it anymore. We need concrete data and we need the resources to back it up. Yeah. We could go off on so many different tangents <laughs> on, oh. on, on the ramifications of these things, including assessment. Um, but I, I'm picking up on something you said there. Will it come back? Will traditional assessment techniques come back? I mean, that's one that I, I keep kind of hoping they, that they don't, they don't. I mean, my, my kids are about to take the SATs uh, for, for college. And after going through that experience with my oldest one, BP, um, I really don't want to, to redo that experience and, and see what the value is. Maybe is this the time where we can rethink the way we do the assessment as oh, an example? God. I, I hope so. I really, really hope so. And, you know, as a parent of two teenagers who did skip ACT and SAT, respectively, uh, and colleges had to look at them for their actual merits and read their applications rather than just look at some number and call it a day. Yeah. Uh, I don't necessarily think that impact was a bad thing. Mm. Now the question remains, if we're going to look at it from state perspectives, how do we measure and benchmark Look, now's not the time that we want to simply just get rid of all assessments because at the end of the day, we do need to make sure that students are achieving at higher performance levels. We can't do that by just simply making a test longer and harder. We have to do it by really measuring something that is relevant to today's learning and in a way that's meaningful for the child. If it's going to help them in their career path, great. But how much do we still do just because that's the way we've always done it. And that's going to be up to state and national leaders in the DOE and in every state department of education to really start to really critically rethink that. And don't just work with, you know, one stakeholder group, work with all of them and come up with something very, very meaningful. Right. Let's go back uh, a little bit now to where you are in your new position and where you're looking at uh, specifically the uh, efficiencies, the effectiveness of devices. So again, there's kind of a theor theoretical sense of what remote learning could look like when students who have devices are, uh, what was the phrase? Uh, you know, anytime, anywhere learning, right? Everybody would have their, their laptop sure. or their tablet or wherever their device is and they can log in and, and uh, power up uh, wherever they are. March 13th, was the day last year where every director of technology in school districts across the U.S. and across the world finally handed over that laptop and took it out of the cart and said, good luck, here you go, um, and for, you know, for the ones who had it. Um, some real stark realities started to come in on, in terms of device maintenance, device management, uh, and the actual effectiveness of having a device in the hands of a child in their home. Talk a little bit about what you've seen from, from the Qualcomm side of this. Sure. And you know, what we've been doing with Qualcomm technologies, it's really looking at when that device leaves school, because here in the U S for example, on average, pre pandemic levels, 23% of school age children did not have internet access at home. And that's a mix between those who couldn't afford it. And that is, you know, Luckily, it's being addressed um, through the stimulus programs with emergency broadband. Uh, 
uh, through the Lifeline program. And now will also be uh, offered support through E-Rate. But there's also a vast majority of students who physically cannot get it. Mm. You know, if you were to wait for some sort of cable line or phone company to be able to provide a wired broadband, you know, connection to your home, well, hold your breath and keep waiting because six to seven percent of this country is still in that criteria. You start going outside the US. And you could look at countries like India, Rwanda, where it's less than 5% of households have access to fixed broadband. Now, you start looking at cellular broadband, and those countries start going in like 80%, almost 90%. And here in the U.S., you may not be able to get a cable line to your house. You may not be able to get cable TV but guess what? You still likely have some degree of access to cellular connectivity. Mm-hmm. And more and more people have had to rely on it. And if you just think about how schools have been trying to do it, up until now, they've, you know, the most common approach has been device plus a hotspot. And hotspots come you know, with all their good. They still come with some issues at play. Well, I know. I, I recently saw a piece about... Uh, Verizon having a, a number of hotspots that needed to come back because of uh, some issues in terms of heat and, and uh, actual just like physical, the, the worry of a physical danger as a result of overuse, right? Yeah. And, you know, some of the, you know, some of the day-to-day challenges I think you're going to run into, um, families and children pull the SIM cards out of hotspots, they put them to other devices. If that service wasn't filtered internet access, you could be in violation of the Children's Internet Protection Act here in the U.S. Um, Students forget to charge the hotspots. They lose the charging cables. I had one superintendent in California tell me his number one call into the IT help desk from last March till this April, I forgot the password to my hotspot. Um, The batteries on hotspots aren't designed to go through all the charging cycles similar to a laptop or a Chromebook. And when students don't have strong Wi-Fi connection, they'll go look for any Wi-Fi they can get their hands on. They'll go to the local store. They'll go anywhere. That's a potential security issue as well. And let's not forget kind of the overarching issue, and it's one that's personal to me. A child that has to carry around some sort of supplemental or unique device that separates them from everybody else, that just goes to create a stigma to say, hey, I'm a poor kid. Mm -hmm. And to carry around something that only magnifies a real socioeconomic issue they're personally faced with, why as educators do we want to do that to a young person? Mm -hmm. So... What I'm, you know, I've been seeing and, and what I'm very proud of is looking at embedded cellular in student devices. And this has been growing uh, and it's a trend that started in the last year. And we're now seeing mainstream computer manufacturers offering um, learning devices for students, ruggedized for education with currently built in 4G LTE connectivity right in the unit. Mm. And in fact, FutureSource is predicting in the next couple of years, anywhere from six to as much as 13% of student devices globally are going to have built-in cellular connections. And so will that effectively make 
them just an like an automatic part of the node i mean so like an an example like we we won't have to even talk about this anymore they'll just work the kids can just turn it on and have access if, correct yeah, yeah they no more looking for a Wi-Fi network. No, you know, nothing like this. You open the device and you just are connected. And in fact, if that device is sitting in standby mode, it's still powered on, but it's just closed. It's not draining a lot of power. Guess what? The CIO can track the device. If mm -hmm. they need to push an update to it, they can push an update to it. And because you already have filtering at the device level, you don't have to worry about the internet signal coming in and filtering that because you're filtering on the device. It can't, that laptop or Chromebook can't be turned into a hotspot for other devices. So only students are using it and it's very filtered and controlled. And, you know, another thing to think about just in the last, you know, I'd say year and a half, we've seen a number of ransomware attacks against school systems. And one of the things they go after is the wireless network. Well, whether or not you want to consider your cellular network to be primary or backup, it now gives an extra layer of protection. Some schools may actually want to keep all of their students off the private network of the school just for added security and integrity, because students oftentimes can be the ones that are clicking on things they shouldn't click on. Mm -hmm. And if they do and they bring it into your network, that's a huge risk. So we're always seeing some schools that could envision putting all students on cellular network and keeping them away from critical systems. And this in effect is making school districts internet service providers now as well, right? They could, I mean, they've got a couple choices. They can work with the carriers and right now with E-rate, there is going to be potentially 100% subsidy on connectivity for low-income students. Mm. But you look at the sort of costs for these plans now, they're getting more and more affordable than they were even just a year ago. Mm. The prices have come down and really, I gotta tip my hat to some of the carriers, especially here in the US, but we've seen it in Canada, in Japan, in uh, UK. A lot of countries are really starting to step up because they feel responsible that they have to commit to the success of the next generation. There are some school systems that are looking to build out their own private LTE networks. And that certainly is a viable option, particularly if you may not have strong cellular service in your area. But as somebody who was, you know, a school-based ISP back in 1996, um, running, you know, a T1 and having a modem bank for, you know, users to dial into it sounds a lot sexier than it really is there's so much you don't realize you're going to be getting into and look again i i, I commend any school system cio cto that is looking at that i think it's wonderful but be prepared there is a lot of life cycle management that is going to need to occur to keep that network up to date secured, well-maintained, and continue to upgrade as new telecom industries advance. And we start to see the evolution from 4G to 5G. How much responsibility will the districts have in terms of offering that sort of bandwidth to the, to the rest of the family? 
I mean, are, do we have to rethink about the way in which that broadband's being delivered to the community at large? Well, and I think that's where we can be pretty thankful right now. You know, particularly through the Lifeline program, there's an emergency broadband initiative, which has about $5.6 billion already allocated from the American Rescue Plan. Um, that addresses um, up to $50 a month subsidy for low-income families for internet access. And they can get that through carriers, through local uh, cable operators, anybody. So the great thing is there is now funding to make that separate. So schools shouldn't feel burdened that, look, if they're going to give this student um, you know, a, a, a hotspot or something, it's not going to be that child plus four or five other family members all trying to work off of that one small signal. Yeah. Instead, the child's device is filtered and has its own independent access, and the family now has the ability to bring in additional connectivity to you know, handle everything from streaming videos to work to their own personal studies, anything that they need to do. So the great thing about it is, I don't think for the short-term schools have to really face that responsibility. Yeah. Certainly somebody looking to build private networks could offer it up as a service. You do get into issues where you start, you know, when the school ISP becomes a real business yeah. and charging. So that may, you know, conflict with some funding models out there for federal subsidy. But the great thing is now there are federal programs in place here in the U.S. to address both student connectivity and household connectivity. Yeah. So let me pull ourselves out of the weeds here a little bit and ask you this uh, question almost in summary. This is possible to do. You feel in a best case scenario, these gargantuan tasks uh, and aspects can be accomplished? And if so, give me a, give me a horizon on in a best case scenario, uh, in, in a world where everything is working and everyone is working together, um, where do we, how long does this, something like this take? Well, the great thing is, this is happening now. And I don't think this is really gonna take that long. We should see the E-rate filing window open sometime in the June, July timeframe um, this summer for devices, for connectivity. Now, there could be uh, another year of back orders, as we did see with, you know, the device industry in education. Right. That may happen. But we're already doing programs. And in fact, Qualcomm over the years has been doing a program called Wireless Reach. And we've done this in several countries. And even just recently, we've done one in Vietnam with devices that are always connected. Mm. And the great thing is, those students, they just open the device and they just go. They're spending far less time loading and connecting and far more time learning. Now, I will say it does put additional challenges on devices because now if you're using that device for also cellular connectivity and you're going to be extending the school day, the biggest issue is going to be battery life from a technology perspective. So when you do see manufacturers saying, hey, oh, up to eight hours, up to 10 hours, maybe even up to 12 hours of battery life, that might not be enough. You know, we're starting to see devices um, with Qualcomm compute um, systems inside, and they're offering 15, 20 hours of battery life, truly multi-day battery life. Mm. 
and the ability to just do a quick charge that if you just recharge that device for even 15, 30 minutes, you got enough to get through the rest of the school day, no problem. Mm. And that's something you can't do with traditional architecture in these devices. So just as the communication technology of smartphones and such are you know, now coming into day-to-day computing devices, we need that same sort of processing power, uh, performance, and battery life to come with it. Well, Elliot, um, I hope to have you on more than once a year. Uh, I had to say that uh, as far as conversations go, this this year's is much better (laughs) than last year's. Uh, I think my my therapist says, you know, I I should be focused on the positive (laughs) and you're helping me do that because when I look at all the the various things that need to take place when we want to try to solve an issue like digital equity, it's it's overwhelming. But when you break it down into the, the different steps as you did from the carrier level to the device level um it does seem possible it it does and that's why i i I love my t-shirt that says no wi-fi no problem because and what i i see qualcomm really fostering for this new generation it's not just digital equity anymore that's what schools have been trying to do for this last year i really consider it to be digital liberation Hmm. Let's just eliminate the barrier altogether and provide connectivity for every child, wherever they need it, a secure and productive means to do so. That's what's got me excited. It's why I came over here and it's, you know, a lot of great things are going to be coming in the next couple of years. And I'm kind of really excited to be on this journey. Well, congratulations on your new role. And uh, thank you for all the work that you do and that Qualcomm does in terms of making these sort of concepts a reality. So I appreciate it. Anytime. Come on back and we'll both do therapy together. I know a place that has <laughs> twin couches. Excellent. Excellent. And thanks, everybody, for, for tuning in to this latest EdTech Today episode. I hope you find another one soon. I'm Kevin Hogan. <laughs>